Today our majalis, what is our majalis? That believes in our own madhab. So why do we think human beings, human beings, the Quran and you open the Quran and you try to understand the Quran, if you don't on the 13th year after the hijrah after the demise of the first khalifa abu bakr ibn abi quhafa the second individual who claimed the position of Khilafah and took the leadership position of the Muslim Ummah was Umar ibn al-Khattab. His reign continued for 10 years, 6 months and 4 days. Umar ibn al-Khattab is considered to be one of the most important personalities within Islamic history. His influence undoubtedly has shaped many aspects of the religion that we call Islam today. He is seen to be a hero, to be a hero of Islam who expanded the Islamic Empire outside the Arabian Peninsula all the way to the midst of the Persian Empire. The conquest of Qazween and the conquest of Isfahan and the conquest of the most important cities within the Persian Empire, then to Azerbaijan, and from Azerbaijan all the way to Africa, Egypt, and Alexandria, was all done during the reign of Umar ibn al-Khattab. The Islamic armed forces became extremely strong. Not only he is seen to be the most successful of the righteous caliphs, Al-Khulafa al-Rashidin, but he is also revered and respected as one of the closest companions to Rasulullah. Not only that, but the father of Hafsa, the wife of Rasulullah, which makes him the father-in-law of the Prophet. He's respected and revered to an extent that sometimes his glory outshines the glory of the Prophet himself. There are some traditions in the Muslim books. There are some statements by imams and scholars that state he is the most learned the most wise of the companions of Rasulullah. In fact, one of the grand imams has stated that at the death of Umar, nine-tenths 
of knowledge was buried with him. And why do we examine this personality? Do we examine this personality to cause division amongst the Muslim Ummah? Absolutely not. Do we examine this personality so that we say we are better than them? Absolutely not. Do we examine this personality to cause division and hard feelings for other Muslims who respect and revere this personality? Absolutely not. Is our intention to disrespect anyone or to belittle their position? Absolutely not. We are here to discuss an extremely important phenomenon. And that is Islam between distortion and originality. I'm not interested to speak of the lineage of Umar ibn al-Khattab. Who were his parents? Where was he born? When was he born? What did he eat? How did he look? How did he dress? How did he speak? What was his favorite, for example, wife? He had ten wives. Well, this is not my intention. I'm not here to discuss his personal life. I'm here to discuss one thing and one thing only. How was Islam, the original message of Islam, preserved during the ten years, six months, and four days of the reign of this individual? As a companion and as the father-in-law of Rasulullah, how protective was he of the legacy of Rasulullah, of the originality of Islam? And and unless we don't study Islam through the context in which it was revealed and understood then Islam remains to be an ambiguous and sometimes dangerous methodology, dangerous faith, dangerous religion. Yesterday we discussed events such as beheading of individuals, the burning of individuals, the killing of the rejected, those who rejected the Khilafah of the first Khalifa. And we studied the influence of those acts on what we call Islam today. For example, when Daesh burned the, the pilot, or they beheaded innocent individuals, or they cut the limbs of innocent people, they used parts of Islamic history as evidence that this is not an innovation of today, but this is embedded in the Islamic ideology. And here is the proof. Similarly today, we will ask questions of what was it that entered into the religion of Islam during those 10 years, 6 months, and 4 days. And what elements of Islam were removed and erased out of the religion of Islam during the reign of the second Khalifa. More importantly, his interaction with Rasulullah as a companion. Was it the type of interaction 
that desired to protect the originality of the religion of Islam or to say the least question the statements and the orders of the last and divine, divine messenger of Allah and let me give you an example today let me, let me make it a little easier to comprehend today a lot of people say we don't understand the Quran we don't understand the religion of Islam the religion of Islam has changed so much throughout the years and it's evolved so much throughout the years and it's almost impossible to be able to find the original teachings of Islam. Similarly, the Quran, we can't understand the Quran. The Quran is very difficult. And it's true, if you grab the Quran and you open the Quran and you try to understand the Quran, if you don't speak Arabic, it becomes very difficult. If you try to read the translation, it's even more difficult and confusing. Because we've used very difficult language in translating the Holy Quran. And when we read the Holy Quran, we, we come across things that are questionable. Sometimes even disturbing. So what do we do? We ignore them. We ask and we're not getting answers. And then we tell ourselves, here is where we disagree with the scholars and seminarians that Islam and that the, the Quran is still a relevant book. This book, I don't see it as a relevant book. This Islam, I don't see it as a relevant religion. I don't see it as a way of life anymore. For example, you read the Quran and you find that there is a chapter named Muhammad and there is a chapter named Nuh. And there is a chapter named Yusuf. And there is a chapter, for example, named Maryam. Those are very important personalities. Everybody knows those personalities. They're revered and respected personalities by members across all the Abrahamic religions. Christians, Jews, Muslims, even atheists. They all know Abraham. They all know uh, Noah, they all know a personality such as Mary. But then, you have those titles, then you have the ant. Muhammad, ant. Then you have the cow, Ibrahim, cow. And then you have the bee, al-nahl. And then, for example, you have Surah al-Fatih that spoke of the liberation of Mecca. Where do we, how do we understand this phenomenon in the Quran? Do we just say, well, you know, God, I guess, just likes cows, ants, and bees. Doesn't like, for example, other animals. That's why he named it. No. If you feel that the Quran is out of date, try being inspired not by the verses of the Quran, but the title of the Quran. And I'll tell you how the title of the chapter outlives time. And remains an eternal inspiration. Not the very first verse of this chapter. The title of the chapter. How so? Imagine the chapter the bee. We read this chapter. We come across it so many times. Have we pondered why is it that Allah gives the title an entire chapter after this insect the bee? You see this chapter was revealed at a time where Muslims were extremely fed up. Extremely fed up. They were spending money. They were still being fought. 
They were giving lives and they were still outnumbered. They were the ones putting everything they had in existence to defend Islam, Rasulullah, and the Quran, yet they were very weak. And who was powerful? Their enemies. Who became more powerful? Their enemies. Who became weaker? Them. So they're thinking, where is God? Where, where is God here? We're the ones spending money. We're the ones being excommunicated, driven to um, outside the holy city of Mecca, being tortured, beaten, killed. Yet we are the believers in God and the Prophet Muhammad. And the enemies, they become more powerful every single day. Where is God here? And you can imagine some of them wanted to give up. Some of them wanted to just break. They had lost their patience. How much of this can we take? Then Allah sends them a chapter and He gives the title Al-Nahl to this chapter. Saying what? Saying you human beings, don't look at yourself today. Don't look at your situation today. You have an ill child. You lost your job. You got a flat tire on the way here. You have some family problems. Your boss doesn't like you. Don't look at your situation today as an individual. Look at all of humanity. There you find human beings, human beings as selfish individuals. Very selfish. What do I mean? Today, who is selling weapons so that human beings can kill one another. Is it aliens that's selling weapons to other human beings? No, it's human beings that manufacture those weapons. It's human beings that get rich on the blood of other human beings. It's human beings that waste water while 25% of other human beings do not have clean drinking water. It is human beings that spend $20,000 on a pair of sandals while other human beings, families, don't have a loaf of bread to eat. It is human beings who are so selfish, selling drugs and alcohol to children. So that they can overdose and die from drunk driving so they can become rich. Allah says, you human beings, don't tell me that you're a saint. You know why you're a saint? Because you have no power. Because you have no authority. As soon as you have power and authority, you're not going to be a saint anymore. Don't tell me I'm better than others. You haven't been tested. Don't say, oh Allah, how come you gave the money to, all, to my cousin? Look, at, look how he's wasting this money. Give it to me. If I had this money, I would have been the most charitable guy. Don't say that. Because you haven't been tested with this money. Once you're tested with that money, we'll know if you're a saint. We'll know if you're going to be charitable. You haven't been given the power and authority. Once you're given the power and authority, that's when you're tested. 
That's when we know the real you. Huh? So Allah says, you human beings, just look at yourselves. Look at those Arabs and the people of Quraysh and what they're doing to their own family members just because they say that we're Muslim. You think they were against God? You think they were against, for example, oneness of God? No, they were against the fact that they were going out of business. Quraysh was going bankrupt. People were no longer bringing gold and silver and, and money and, and, and throwing it in front of the idols of Quraysh so they can freeload off the money of other people. That is why Quraysh fought Rasulullah for the sake of money, for the sake of power, for the sake of authority. Right? They were willing to kill their own children and fight their own cousins. A father would disown his child because he's entered the religion of Islam. So Allah says, look at you human beings. Now compare yourself to this bee. How obedient is the bee? How humble is the bee? How united is the community of bees? There's one queen. A hundred assistants to the queen that are the ministers. And thousands and thousands and thousands of labor workers. That just do their job. They don't complain. They're not jealous of each other. They're not there to destroy one another. They're a community that believes in its existence and works so hard. Right? So when I read the Quran and I say, why would Allah name this chapter Surah An-Nahl? And I understand the context. I appreciate the Quran so much more. Similarly, if I want to appreciate Islam today, I have to go back in history, brothers and sisters, to see where was it that certain things that seem so illogical, so brutal, so un-Islamic, infiltrated the religion of Islam. I don't care if you're Shia. I don't care if you're Sunni. And I'll tell you one thing, brothers, sitting in front of me today. Don't think that I'm picking on other madhahib. No, a day will come where I will speak of the truth when it comes to certain elements and cultural activities and beliefs and our own madhahib, the followers of Ahlul Bayt. Are we willing to change them? Are we willing to perfect our communities, brothers? Are we willing to change the bad habits that we have. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very amusing when we sit there and we're picking on other people and we're thinking, yeah, yeah well, we're so good. We're the best. And we don't talk about our own flaws. The real challenge is when we will be discussing our own flaws. And we have a lot of flaws. And the worst part is we attribute those flaws and mistakes and misinformation to whom? To Imam Ali. To Imam Hassan. To Imam Hussein. And what language do we have to communicate to some of the elders who have gray hair? Their days are limited. 
All of our days are limited. I don't know if I'm going to be here tomorrow. Their days are limited on this earth. Wallahi, their days are limited on this earth. And they think that the Imam Hussein in the day of judgment he will say, You Azgar, come my beloved. You went 60 years to Majalis to eat chutney, come. I love the way you used to eat the biryani in the Imam Barga. I love the fact that you used to wear your wrinkled black shirt and go to the Imam Barga. And in the work you wear your nice beautiful suit. Why? Because we think when we come to the majalis, we have to wear humble, wrinkled clothes. We don't use cologne. We don't perfect. We don't fix our beard. Mashallah, the beard is all the way to his neck. And you say, why you do this? Why you come like this to them? Because this place, we have to be humble. Who told you? Allah says, Even Majlis of Imam Hussein. Who told you you have to eat onions and come to the Majlis of Imam Hussein? Eat garlic and come to the majlis of Imam Hussein, huh? In the a'mal of ziyara, go read the book of ziyara. You have to do ghusl for the ziyara of Imam Hussein. Ghusl. Then you use the most beautiful of scents, atar. You comb your beard. You walk with small steps towards the shrine of Imam Hussein. What does this tell you? This tells you etiquette. This tells you ihtiram. This tells you akhlaq. This tells you moral behavior, ethics. In fact, they say when you go to the ziyarah of Imam Hussein, eat less. Do more dua. Recite the Quran. Supplicate to Allah. Sadden yourself with the tragedy of Aba Abdullah al Hussein. But today, our majalis, what is our majalis? Should I say more? Brothers, sisters, this phenomenon of food, this phenomenon of food in our majalis, if it is there for barakah and the blessing, even one bite is enough. I know people, Jews and Christians and Zoroastrians, who stand in line for one bite of the barakah of Imam al-Hussein to take shifa for their ill ones. This is the philosophy of the barakah of the. Not the fact that we fill our stomachs and we sit and we chat and then we sip on the tea and then we smoke a cigarette and we chat and then last five minutes we show up in the majlis. Are we willing to change those? Are we willing to wake up with the days and nights of Ashura and the member of Imam al-Hussein? And don't say, Wallahi, this is the job of Sayyid Jawad Qazwini. This is why he's here, to wake us up, to shake the community. No, who told you this is only my job? Who told you this is only the job of the Sayyid and the Mawlana? Amr bil ma'roof and nahi an al-munkar is the job of every member of the community. If you see somebody making a mistake, you have to correct it. And I don't mean go pick a fight, go drag him and tell him, no, enough eating, let's go inside. No. Or embarrass him. Or her. No. Politely, respectfully, 
We must be able to bring change in our community and that will come. Since I took some time, we have to go back to our important discussion. We will examine this personality, the second Khalifa, Umar ibn al-Khattab in two stages. One, during his Sahaba and companionship of Rasulullah in the following stages. Number one, whether he converted to the religion of Islam and the story of his conversion. And we must understand why, when, and where, and according to what motives Umar ibn al-Khattab entered the religion of Islam. Number two, we will discuss his stance in Sulh al-Hudaybiyah, the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah. Number three, we will discuss his stance during the life of Rasulullah when Rasulullah did Salat al-Janazah on Abdullah ibn Ubay, a known hypocrite. Number four, we will examine his stance in Raziyatul Khamis, the tragedy of the Thursday. And then we will discuss him and the following steps after the demise of Rasulullah. Number one, Saqifa. His stance in Saqifat Bani Sa'ida. Number two, how did he achieve the Khilafah? Number three, his stance from Adhan during his Khilafah. Number four, his stance from Salah during his Khilafah. Number five, his stance from marriage during his Khilafah. Number six, his stance from punishments and specifically stoning. Stoning. Not the shaitan and mina, but the stoning of the adulteress. And last but not least, the process of his death. After your loud and clear and beautiful Husseini salawat ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. Historians, I am not. I'm not going to speak about con, uh, controversial statements. I'm not going to give you the Shi'i perspective. I'm going to give you that which. You may disagree with me in my conclusions. I will not be making any conclusions. But you cannot disagree with history. What I'm about to tell you is not from one or two or ten or twenty books. What I'm about to tell you, you will find in every single book of hadith and history. That I can guarantee you. I'm not going to say anything controversial. Anything that can be found in one specific book with a weak gen of narrators or in Bihar al-Anwar, or for example, Allama al-Majlisi, or Allama al-Nuri. No. This comes straight from Bukhari, and Muslim, and Ibn Majah, and Tirmidhi, and the major books. They say that Umar ibn al-Khattab was the 40th man to enter the religion of Islam. How so? Someone told him, that his sister had entered the religion of Islam with his brother-in-law. So he went to his sister and he would carry a stick. He beat his sister so much that he gave her a black eye. Some historians say he blinded one of her eyes. How dare you become a Muslim? How dare you 
leave the pagan ideology. When he left, again, this is what's the norm. This is what's believed. I'm not going to give you, you know, other stories. This is believed by all the Muslims. When he came, someone told him, you know, Rasulullah, he prays for you to become Muslim. Go visit him. So he visited Rasulullah. Rasulullah, in a long story, convinced him to become a Muslim. He became a Muslim. Because Rasulullah prayed, Oh Allah, bring Umar into Islam. And some traditions, they say Rasulullah prayed, he says, Ya Allah, glorify Islam by the entrance of Umar. So through a miracle, Umar became a Muslim. Through the dua of Rasulullah, he became a Muslim. Anyhow, the 40th person to enter the religion of Islam. From what religion? From what religion? Pagan. He used to worship idols. But he was heavily influenced by Jewish tradition. He had a lot of Jewish friends. Some scholars believe he was a Jew, but he was not a Jew. He was a pagan from Quraysh, but heavily influenced by Jews. This is a very important part of this discussion, brothers and sisters. That is why when Umar ibn al-Khattab, the second Khalifa, took reign and governance of the Ummah, he appointed his deputy, his right-hand man, his advisor, a rabbi who was known as Hebrul Ummah. Go read history. Ka'bul Ahbar, I'm sorry. Ka'bul Ahbar. Ka'bul Ahbar was an ex-rabbi. And Umar himself was heavily influenced by Jewish tradition. That is why many historians speak of the fact that Umar would say to Rasulullah, Ya Rasulullah, tell us of the story of Musa. Tell us of Musa. Tell us of the story of Musa. Tell us how great he was. Tell us of the prophets of Bani Israel until one time Rasulullah says, Umar, stop. Stop. If Musa was alive today, he would follow me. I am the Nabi. Musa would be one of my followers. So he was heavily influenced by Jewish tradition. And Ka'b al-Ahbar became his deputy, his advisor. Everything he needed, he would go to Ka'b al-Ahbar. When he became a Khalifa, he gave a chair to Ka'b al-Ahbar to speak at the, from the member of Rasulullah to the Muslim community. To teach the Muslim community, an ex-rabbi. While he was the one that said, if I see anyone quote Rasulullah's hadith, I will punish him. Hasbuna kitabullah. You need Islam, read the Quran. Discuss Quran. No hadith. Hadith is not allowed. Now keep this in mind, we're going to come back to this. When we discuss stoning, the punishment of stoning, rajm, we will come back to the influence of Ka'b al-Ahbar on Umar ibn al-Khattab. And today's Islam, when you see people, they tie the hands of people who may be sinners, huh? throw them into a ditch, and then stone them until they die. How brutal is that? How inhumane is that? And we wonder, where did this come from? Let us go back. Let us reevaluate and research and restudy the religion of Islam. You will know where it came from. Anyhow, because if you go to the Old Testament and the New Testament, what do you find there? Stoning. 
if I'm not mistaken, over 16 crimes or sins received the stoning punishment. What's come to the Quran? Do you find stoning? Absolutely not. That's, we're, we're going to discuss that inshallah momentarily. This was his entrance into the religion of Islam. He became a companion to Rasulullah. Let's speak of another stance in the sixth year after the hijrah. There are many events, many events, but I have to pick some of them. And believe me, I am picking the ones that are up in absolute agreement amongst Muslims. The books that have been written to glorify and praise the second Khalifa Umar ibn al-Khattab have those stories, not the ones against him. They say that in the sixth year after the migration, Rasulullah decided to perform the minor hajj, Umrah. So he took his companions from Medina to Mecca. He was intercepted by Quraysh. They said, Muhammad, you cannot enter Mecca. Go back. Rasulullah said, let us write a peace treaty with them. And the peace treaty was seen to be the greatest of achievements of Rasulullah. As soon as Rasulullah decided that he's going to write a peace treaty with them, Umar came. Ya Rasulullah, why? Why we're having a peace treaty with them? Aren't we strong enough to face them? Aren't you a prophet? This is what he said to Rasulullah. Are you not a prophet? Did you not tell us we're going to Mecca? How come we didn't enter Mecca? How come you're telling us to stop here? Rasulullah looked at him and he says, Ya Umar, did you forget that I am Rasulullah? Allah orders me, Allah has ordered me to sign a peace treaty. Who are you to question Allah? I don't question Allah. Who are you to question Allah? In his manaqib, they write that Umar said the following statement after that. I continue to pay charity and I continue to ask forgiveness and I continue to fast because of the day that I questioned Rasulullah. The day of Sulh Hudaybiyah. Third, is the day of Khaybar. Rasulullah says, Ya Umar, prior to him Abu Bakr, and after him Umar, Ya Umar, go and liberate Khaybar. Take with you some men and liberate Khaybar in the seventh year after the Hijrah. Keep those dates in mind. We spoke of the sixth year, now we're in the seventh year after the Hijrah. Rasulullah sent him to liberate Khaybar. He came back. He calls his team, his army, his followers cowards, and they call him a coward. They came back, they couldn't liberate Khaybar. Rasulullah says, tomorrow. Tomorrow, I will give the standard to a man that will never run. He will liberate Khaybar and he will come to us with a victory. And the next day, 
even Umar himself, he has a hadith in Sahih Muslim that says, I wished that Rasulullah would pick me the next day, even though he had failed. But because this was such an enormous, gigantic token of respect and honor, he says, I was amongst the people waiting. Ya Rasulullah, choose me again. The next day, Rasulullah says, bring me Ali ibn Abi Talib. They said, Ya Rasulullah, anna fi aydihi aynihi ramad. Ya Rasulullah, Ali can't see. I bet you many people are also happy. Uh, Ali can't see. So somebody else has to go. I don't know why. Why? What did Ali do? What is this animosity with this man? This mazloom? Rasulullah says, bring him. It's not a problem. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam placed his saliva on the eyes of Amir al-Mu'mineen. He cured his eyes through the miracle. And he sent Amir al-Mu'mineen and he liberated Khaybar. This was the seventh year. And then let us discuss Raziyatul Khamis. Mentioned by Imam Bukhari, mentioned by Imam Muslim, mentioned by Mustadrak ala sahihain Abdullah ibn Abbas says, the Thursday before the Monday, Rasulullah's demise was on a Monday. This was a Thursday. Rasulullah, when Rasulullah was on his deathbed, he called people that were there. Amongst them was Umar ibn al-Khattab. And he says, Atuni bi wa Give me a paper and pen. So I can write for you something that you will never go astray after me. Bukhari says, Umar said, Rasulullah has been taken over by pain. So don't trouble him. He can't write. Forget it. You know, don't bring him the piece of paper. Others have said no. He says, Inna rajula, the man, Rasulullah, from Rasulullah became a man. He lost his status of being Rasulullah. He's hallucinating. He's bluffing. And there was a dispute. Some people would say, give him paper, paper and pen. Some people will say no. Until Rasulullah says, leave my chamber. Ibn Abbas says, the biggest calamity. The biggest tragedy was when Umar did not allow Rasulullah to give us his last advice, his last admonishment. What happens to the verse of the Quran, brothers, sisters, my beloveds? لا ينطق عن الهوى إن هو إلا وحيون. Rasulullah speaks wahi. He does not speak of his own. If you believe in the Quran, how can you believe that Rasulullah is about to do something that doesn't make sense to say the least? Then after the demise of Rasulullah, after the demise of Rasulullah, this man had a very important role to play. The very first role was when the Ansar gathered in Saqifat Bani Sa'idah. Many people, when we say Saqifat Bani Sa'idah, the first thing they, build, they think is Umar and Abu Bakr created Saqifat Bani Sa'idah. That's not the case. 
They were not the creators of Saqif ibn Sa'dah. The Ansar, while Rasulullah was being washed before being buried, the Ansar who, who were whom? The people of Medina gathered in a club known as Saqif at Bani Sa'idah, a clubhouse, to choose a Khalifa. Listen, listen to this. If you want to know Islamic history, why? The Ansar were not malicious people. They received Rasulullah. Rasulullah married from them. They endorsed Rasulullah. They gave everything they had for Rasulullah. But why did they do that? Number one, because they knew Ali wasn't going to be the Khalifa. They had already felt it. They knew that there was something fishy going on. Okay, that's one. Why? You may ask why. Because Rasulullah kept saying, Usama. Leave the city of Medina. Go and take part in the army of Usama. But they didn't. They didn't leave. Then Rasulullah asked someone to lead the prayers. And there, there was a dispute. There was an incident where Abu Bakr went to lead the salah. And then Rasulullah came out of his house and removed him and finished the salah. So there was, you know, they felt it. They felt it coming. It was nothing against Ali ibn Abi Talib. But why would they do that? I'll tell you why. You want to know why? Because the Ansar stood with Rasulullah against whom? Mecca and Quraysh. They thought that if Rasulullah dies and Quraysh comes back to power, what's going to happen to us? We're the one that assisted Muhammad. We're the ones that gave him a home. We're the ones that made him an army. We are the ones that attacked the pagans in Badr and in Uhud. If the Khalifa becomes one of them, what happens to us? We'll be annihilated. So they were planning for their lives. They were planning for themselves not to be annihilated, not to be attacked, not to be destroyed. That is why they met in Saqif at Bani Sa'idah to nominate one of them. Someone went to inform Imam Ali. But the gentlemen had spies. They came to him. While they wanted to inform Imam Ali, he had spies inside the house of Rasulullah. Who was his spy? His daughter, Hafsa. She was there. There is a meeting taking place in Saqifat Bani Sa'idah to appoint a Khalifa after Rasulullah. He rushed there. And he said, Lam yamut Muhammad. Lam yamut Rasulullah. Rasulullah has not died and he will never die and he is ill and he will return and whoever says Muhammad has died I will suffer him I will cut his throat today scholars when they come to this incident they say because Omar could not believe Rasulullah has died out of his love out of his compassion he was shocked he could not believe the news so he was in denial he kept saying Rasulullah has not died. Sahih Muslim has a hadith. Sahih Muslim has a hadith in Manaqib al-Sahaba, the virtues of Sahaba. Manaqib Umar ibn al-Khattab, 
the virtues of Umar ibn al-Khattab. One of them is this hadith, a conversation between Umar and Rasulullah. Brothers, I'm not using, again, Bihar al-Anwar. I'm using Sahih Muslim. So for those Muslims out there in the world who are fair, listen to me. Umar came, he says, Ya Rasulullah, I love you. According to this hadith in Sahih Muslim, it says, Ya Rasulullah, I love you so much. I love you more than my wealth and my children and everything else, but I love myself more than you. Rasulullah says to him, Ya Umar, لا يكمل إيمان أحدكم your iman is not complete hatta yakuna Allah wa rasuluhu ahabbu ilayh min wuldihi wa malihi wa nafsih. Your iman is incomplete until you love Allah and Rasulullah more than your wealth and your children and yourself. So don't tell me this man was so shocked that he could not bear the news of the fact that Rasulullah had died. So he came. Rasulullah has not died. Don't say he has died. With Abu Ubaidah Jarrah. Moments later, Abu Bakr arrived to the scene. When Abu Bakr arrived to the scene, he says, whoever, he stood calmly. He says, whoever used to worship Muhammad, Muhammad Qadmat, Muhammad is dead. And whoever worships the Lord of Muhammad, he's alive. In that moment, Umar believed the news because Abu Bakr was telling. And he began to cry. And then, Umar said to the Ansar, Ansar, why are you here? You're here to choose a Khalifa? That's fine. The Ansar were divided into two groups. One was Aus and one was Khazraj. So amongst them, there were some dispute. Already they, they were not united. The Muhajireen were also divided. The immigrants were also divided into two groups. Al-Muhajireen, that were the very first initial party that came in with Rasulullah. And then the ones that gradually came. The Muhajireen that came with Rasulullah were seen as the prestigious Muslim community. So Abu Bakr said, the best thing to do is for you to choose a Khalifa from the Muhajireen al-Awwaleen and an Amir from you, Ansar. And, and there he said, listen, I nominate you either Umar ibn al-Khattab or Abu Ubaidah al-Jarrah. Abu Bakr says this, Umar immediately said, how can I become a Khalifa and a leader while you are present, Ya Abu Bakr? Give me your hand so I give you allegiance. Abu Bakr raised his hand. Umar gave him the first allegiance. Abu Ubaidah Jarrah gave him the second. And then the rest of them came. Saqifat Bani Sa'ada chose the Khalifa Abu Bakr. Don't tell me the entire Muslim community came begging, Ya Abu Bakr, please become the Khalifa. Don't tell me this. And then this is where I left you off with yesterday. The death of Abu Bakr. I told you 
that the death of Abu Bakr prior to him and the years that he ruled, he faced many oppositions. Many people were killed. Many people refused to give their zakat to the self-appointed and proclaimed Khalifa. Now, how did Umar become a Khalifa? This is Saqifa. They came after Saqifa. Abu Bakr became the Khalifa. And there is a long story of how um, Khalid ibn Walid came with an army making sure that nobody has the right to oppose. If you oppose, then your neck will go. They took over Medina. All of that is not my point of discussion. How did Umar become a Khalifa? There was no Saqifa. And there was no Shura. Abu Bakr appointed him. Khalas. Abu Bakr wrote that I am Abdullah, Abu Bakr, the Khalifa of the Muslims, and after me the Khalifa is Umar ibn al-Khattab. While he was in his deathbed, look at the irony. Rasulullah in his deathbed didn't know what he was talking about. Allahu Akbar. Rasulullah on his illness, on his deathbed, don't give him a paper and pen. But Abu Bakr in his deathbed, give him a paper and pen. Let him write his wasiyah. Why? What is his wasiyah? His wasiyah is that Umar is the Khalifa after me. And then Umar said to the, to the Khadim, to the servant, the slave, of Abu Bakr had a slave. He said, take this, go outside the home of Abu Bakr and read the wasiyah loudly. And whoever doesn't listen to the wasiyah, you beat him. You say, listen, be quiet. Listen to the wasiyah, huh? Go read the history. Look at the irony. Rasulullah has not given a paper and pen. But then with the wasiyah of Abu Bakr, he became the Khalifa. How did he treat the originality of Islam? First thing, according to Imam Bukhari and Muslim and all the major sources, the first thing is Adhan. He came to the Adhan. One day the Mu'addin came to wake him up. He didn't wake up. So he told him, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, as-salatu khayrun min al-nawm. Salah is better than sleep. So he woke up, he said, what did you say? He says, Put this in the adhan, this is good. No, no, no. Wallahi, I'm not saying this so we laugh. And I don't mean to be disrespectful. He says, put it in the adhan. So the statement, came into the adhan. Don't tell me that I, Jawad Qazwini says this. Jawad Qazwini doesn't say this. Jawad Qazwini is telling you what Bukhari says. Muslim says. The major books of history say. Please take care of that noise. Over there. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. Brothers, why are the salawat is so weak? Why, you haven't ate? You need protein shakes? For the love of Amir al-Mu'mineen wa Mawla al-Muhadeen Ali ibn Abi Talib, the second salawat. Allah, 
For the love of Al-Imam Hassan and Hussein, the third salawat with the loudest of your voices. How did he treat salah? We're talking about originality versus distortion. And the second or third year, after he became the Khalifa, he came into the Masjid of Rasulullah and people were praying Salat al-Layl, Tahajjud, Bayna Raki' Sajid, reciting Quran. He says, why this mess? Everybody's praying. He chose one man and he said, this man will read the Quran and you will pray behind him. And you will do tahajjud and jama'ah. Fine. The next day he came, he saw everybody. One person is reciting the Quran. Everybody else is praying. Salat al-Taraweeh. He says, ni'mal bid'ah. He himself says, this is the, a good bid'ah. How did he treat marriage? I'm not saying this from anybody Closer to him than his own son, Abdullah ibn Umar. They asked him about the mut'ah, the temporary marriage. Is it part of Islam or not? He said, yes, it is. He says, how do you know? He says, because my father told the whole world it's part of Islam. He says, how? He says, my father says, mut'atan kanata ala ahdi rasulillah. My father was a witness that this mut'ah was in the time of Rasulullah. He says, wa ana uharrimuhuma. And I ban them. I take him as a witness, but I do not take his ijtihad and his opinion. How did he treat laws such as stoning? You see, Allah in Surah An-Nisa, brothers and sisters, Surah An-Nisa speaks of the slaves who are married. Muhsanat. Listen to this, we're concluding. If they commit adultery, what is their punishment? According to the Quran, they receive half the punishment of a free woman who is married, and if she were to commit adultery. Now, if we're going to stone someone to death, what would be half a punishment to that? Huh? A woman came. They brought a woman, they dragged a woman. Listen to the story. They dragged a woman in front of him. They say, this woman married this man six months ago. Now she has a ch she delivered a child. What do you say, ya Amir al-Mu'mineen? He says, stone her to death. She committed adultery. They were dragging her to stone her to death. She kept begging, I am innocent. Wallahi, I am innocent. I have not committed adultery. Now, even if she had for adultery to be proven, what do we need? We need witnesses, no? We don't need witnesses. We need witnesses. And those witnesses have to come and give their witness all at once, no? I don't know what the scholar meant when he said nine-tenths of the knowledge was buried when Omar died. What kind of knowledge? An innocent woman was being stoned to death. Amir al-Mu'mineen heard, he came out. He said to him, Ya Omar, what are you doing? He says, I'm stoning this woman. At six months she gave birth. Imam Ali says, Ya Omar, have you not read the Quran? That a birth 
and breastfeeding takes 30 months. And another ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَالْمُرْضِعَاتِ يُرْضِعْنَ أَوْلَادَهُنَّ حَوْلَيْنِ كَامِلَيْنِ And for a woman, she is allowed to breastfeed her child for 24 months. So take 30. Take 24 out of 30. How much are you left with? Six months. This is the minimum of pregnancy, Ya Umar. This woman has not committed adultery. What does he say? What does Umar say? Lawla Ali Lahalaka Umar. He went. And, and, and unfortunately, I don't have talk, I don't have time to talk about the invasions. Is it something noble that Islam reached the Persian Empire and Azerbaijan and and is this something noble? Is this the teaching of Islam? This is we're going to discuss this some other night. But one of those individuals whose name was Firuz, Abu Lu'lu, was a goldsmith. Umar came to him, he said to him, I want you to create me a dagger. He says, which kind of dagger, Ya Amir al-Mumni? He says, a dagger that the whole world is going to talk about. He says to him, I will give you a dagger that the whole world will talk about. Why? Why did he kill him? Why did... Abu Lu'lu attack Umar ibn al-Khattab. I can tell you that it was because of the differentiation between the Persians and the non between the Persians and the Arabs Ajam and Arab Muslims were then divided into two types Arabs and non-Arabs and this person lives with this form of disrespect in him that I am a Muslim but they're still calling me Ajmi they're not giving me the same from Bayt al-Mal and because this person who doesn't pray drinks alcohol commit adultery is Arab he receives more what kind of justice is the justice of the Khalifa? And until today, if you go to Arab countries, what do they tell you? Same thing. Resident, non-resident. Local, non-local. And the differentiation of class between human beings. And they have forgotten the universality of the message of Islam. So Abu Firuz Lu'lu, Abu Lu'lu, ah, Firuz Abu Lu'lu came and stabbed him during Salah. What did he say? What did the second Khalifa, Umar ibn al-Khattab, say when he was stabbed? قَتَلَنِيَ الْكَلْبِ This dog killed me. And of course he was bleeding, then he died. But then, this Khalifa, who we don't care for so much, the fourth Khalifa, huh? Ali ibn Abi Talib. What did he say when he was attacked? Did he say, This dog killed me? No. He says, Fustu wa Rabbil Ka'bah. Fustu wa Rabbil Ka'bah. Ali ibn Abi Talib knows that now that his chapter is being closed, it is being closed with victory and honor. He's graduating with honor. As an honor student of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And brothers, it is those events and the likes that we will continue to discuss that gradually, slowly but surely led to a day called the day of Ashura. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.